the culture of the initiative needs to reflect the local context. But the universal principle of inclusive and equitable scale is that at the design phase, at the capital allocation phase, at the assessment phase, and at the implementation phase, all of those phases of an intervention that we would consider the insights of community and constituents as critically important to impact as we do in the for-profit space. They are centered with no less rigor than we would center the sort of insights of a target customer if we were trying to sell a product. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to make the most impact because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Berelovitz. Tackling the challenges of the social sector at scale can be so challenging that sometimes we can reach for the first solutions we see. But if those solutions aren't equitable and inclusive, we're not truly solving the problem. When it comes to equity, how can we confront missteps in philanthropy and social change leadership? To tackle this topic, I couldn't think of a better person to have a conversation with than Tulane Montgomery. Tulane is the co-CEO of New Profit, a venture philanthropy organization that backs breakthrough social entrepreneurs. Over the last 23 years, New Profit has supported almost 100 organizations with a mix of unrestricted capital and strategic support. But like a lot of leaders in the social sector, Tulane's path wasn't linear. I don't know that I even understood that one could have a career in social impact. Um, I've just always had a real passion for making sure that people and communities had access to the resources and information that they needed to make their own choices to, you know, to really have self-determination. And I think from a very young age, I saw, wait a minute, you know, if that person over there simply knew about this resource and had access to it, that could actually help them, you know, make a choice that might be more beneficial for them and their family. And I saw that play out at a local level, individual level, family level, neighborhood level. And then as I, you know, got older and sort of studied the world we live in, I saw it play out systemically. Tulane drew from her experience as a multi-sector leader to understand what social impact is. There's different ways to enter the question of how do we impact communities in positive ways? How do we support self-determination? How do we advance equity? And the way I tend to think of it is, you know, that we start by listening to the community and constituents that we say we want to support. And I do think that certainly in philanthropy, but, you know, beyond philanthropy, there's a a real listening challenge <laughs> that um, plays out and really plagues our ability to have the impact that we want to have and to scale in the ways we want to scale. So I think that I started my social impact journey by getting really good at listening. And I'm certainly not perfect at it. And I've had lots of moments where I thought I was listening well, and it turns out I wasn't. But really, I started by listening. And I started doing that. I was a business strategy consultant. And at the same time, on weekends and evenings, because a mentor of mine asked me to, I was doing coaching and peer support for a group of young women at my alma mater high school 
who were, you know, struggling academically and in some cases legally. And, you know, my mentor, shout out to Caroline Hunter, who is a real powerhouse, was one of the leaders of the um, movement to divest for to push corporations to divest out of apartheid. Back in the day when that was not what everyone was doing, she was pushing in that way. Uh, She was a real blessing and help to me. And so I was doing my thing, graduated college and had my nice, you know, private sector job. And she said, hey, I want you to come and help these young women. And, you know, if Miss Hunter asked you, you say yes. (laughs) And so I met with these young women and we kind of fell in love with each other. And what I noticed is during the day I was working on how to help multinational corporations better understand customer satisfaction and coming up with lots of fancy, you know, graphics and algorithms and formulas to basically get at that same basic question. And yet on my weekends and free time, all I could really think about was how to engage with these young women and how to listen to them and how to try to get them what they say they wanted for self-determination, you know? And so that's really how I started. And it was informal. It was organic. It was locally driven. It was because a mentor of mine asked me to do something for my community, but it was formative for me. There are so many themes in what you just talked about from listening to the realizations that you want to help but don't know how you talked about systems Mm -hmm. i know that a lot of the work you're doing now is around equity racial equity Mm -hmm. could you talk a bit about that strand how has that followed through your career and how did it lead to where you are now um it's been a theme though i didn't use the word equity certainly in my earlier career it was basically because listen like my family purposefully and consistently, you know, just immersed me in examples of and stories of Black genius. And they did it because what they knew that they didn't articulate to me explicitly until I was a bit older, but what they knew is that in order for me as a Black woman in this country to have a chance at not only navigating this society, but actually being healthy and thriving in the society. They knew that if that was the goal, which was their goal for me, that I would need to be just immersed in data, stories, culture, and evidence that completely contradicted the mythology that exists in this country about Black people. So from the time I was little, like there just was a constant exposure to whether it was their own stories. You know, my mother and father, you know, are educators and creatives and organizers and, you know, children of the civil rights movement. And so their own stories and their own creations are sources for me. But they would always make sure my father's a master drummer and ethnomusicologist. And so some of his life has been spent traveling around the world and all over the continent of Africa, but also Asia and, you know, the Caribbean to understand the role of percussion and societal norms and group formation. And so when he would go to Mali, he would come back and show me videos of the folks dancing and coming together in community. And he would show me, you know, the Malian women and he would show me their feet and he would be like, Tulane, those look like your feet, you know? And, you know, he just had this whole way of making sure that I didn't experience myself as other or outside and that I understood I was part of a global community and that there was just genius and resilience and beauty throughout that. And that anybody, any institution, any person, any practice that would tell me something other 
than that about myself and my people was a lie. Like, so I was just immersed in that and raised in that. You know, it's just in my cells, it's in my DNA. At New Profit, Tulane leads New Profit's initiative called Inclusive Impact, a 100 million social impact fund supporting Black, Latinx, and Indigenous social impact leaders. Tell me about venture philanthropy. Mm-hmm. How would you explain it? And mm-hmm. what role do you think it plays in terms of solving problems at scale? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, New Profit, we started over 20 years ago and we're a philanthropy that was started by social entrepreneurs for social entrepreneurs. And I think that's worth noting because to build any entrepreneurial venture, you need to have resource to build infrastructure. And yet so much of philanthropy gives uh, what we call buy philanthropy, where basically a funder is saying, we think we figured out the answer to this is social problem. And so we're going to look for organizations that are doing what we already decided is necessary. And we're going to give you a grant to do that thing that we think needs to be done. That's by philanthropy. But venture philanthropy is about what we call build philanthropy, meaning we believe in you and your insights. And we know that any institution that's going to survive, never mind scale, is going to need money for infrastructure, for talent, for technology the things that foundations typically don't invest in, but yet still, you know, (laughs) expect somehow for all those needs to be met. So venture philanthropy is important because we recognize that institution building in the social impact space requires money. It requires long-term partnerships. You know, we invest in different models, but for our mezzanine level organizations, we invest for a minimum of three years. Sometimes we stay at the table for up to seven years. And we know that that matters because you can't really build an institution, never mind scale it, without unrestricted capital that allows you to focus on what it takes to build and sustain an enterprise. Like we know that in the for-profit space and in the social impact space, Philanthropy operates as if you can just fund programs and you'll have sustainable institutions and sustained leadership. That's not really what we believe. Venture philanthropy understands that you need unrestricted capital. You need capacity support. You need long-term partnerships. You need patient capital. And you need partnerships where people are in the weeds with you enough to help you problem solve as problems arise, which they will. We're really proud of the fact that we engage in close partnerships with our grantees. We actually sit on the boards. You know, you can imagine, Dan, that initially that can be kind of like the skepticism, right? Because it's like, well, why do you need to be a funder and on my board? The reason we do that is it's about, it's not about monitoring or performance measurement. It's about partnership. It's about because I'm on the board of Girl Trek, I'm able to really dig in with Vanessa and Morgan when it's time to look for talent, when it's time to do some problem solving, when it's time to do the next iteration of the strategic plan. I'm in the weeds enough that I can be a real thought partner and ally and advocate. In 2020, New Profit commissioned an independent study to understand the dynamics in play in the social sector when it comes to racial and ethnic diversity. Here, Tulane shares some of the key findings. So about five years ago, Brian Stevenson joined New Profit at our annual gathering of leaders. It's an event that we did back when people gathered in person in large numbers. And so he talked at that event about proximity. His thesis was that the reason the United States could have one of the most oppressive and blatantly racist legal systems on the planet is because in the United States, we did not have enough proximity to one another across identity and across life experience. And so we behave as if 
my fate is not connected to yours. We behave as if there's a group of folks who are other and over there and their fate does not have any influence on my own. And so at that event, when Brian Stevenson talked to us about proximity, it resonated powerfully. And at New Profit, we looked at our portfolio and our history. And listen, you know, we've been there in the early days of some American institutions like Teach for America and Europe and others. And so there's a lot that we've done that we're incredibly proud of. And what we noticed is that the profile of the entrepreneurs we were investing in, that there was disruption and innovation and rigor, and there was some homogeneity if we looked at racial identity and if we looked at life experience. So there was a lot of Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, great institutions, great institutions, and yet not representative of all of the sources of innovation, disruption, and leadership, right? An important slice of the pie, but certainly not the entire pie itself. And so what did it mean that we did not have greater representation and leadership and investment in leaders who were proximate, according to Brian Stevenson's definition of proximity. Like, what does it mean? What were we saying about where we believe the solutions reside and where the brilliance exists? And so we took a look at our own portfolio, our own practice, and we said, wait a minute, this is a strategic misstep that the social sector is making. And we commissioned this study because we had pattern recognition and a strong hunch <laughs> that if we looked at how philanthropy operated, that we would see an underinvestment in leaders of color, the very leaders who have the proximity and expertise to generate the most high impact insights to solve our most pressing challenges. And our research showed us exactly that. It showed us that at the time of the study, 30% of folks in the U.S. identified as Black and Latinx. Those are the two groups that we focused on for the study, though our work expands beyond those two identity groups. 10% of 501c3 organizations, nonprofit organizations, as they're called, were run by folks of those identity groups, Black and Latinx. But Dan, only 4% of philanthropic capital was invested in organizations led by Black and Brown leaders. Only 4%. So we weren't shocked to see the underinvestment because we saw it. We saw it play out. I've lived it, you know, as a social entrepreneur myself, fundraising, you know, across, you know, many years across the country. And yet when we looked more closely at the features of the 4%, right, we saw that it was even more problematic. We saw many more restrictions for the money afforded to black and brown leaders. So, you know, the idea of unrestricted capital, almost non-existent for BIPOC social impact leaders. So I think that when we talk about inclusive impact at New Profit, and when I think about equity just as a human being, I think, you know, diversity is a wonderful byproduct, but it's actually about that, you know, we're stronger when we leverage the sum of our collective brilliance and don't continue to overlook and disregard the genius and resource and expertise that exists in abundance in communities of color. So how then would you define equitable and inclusive scale? I define equitable and inclusive scale as scale that is guided and informed by the aspirations and experiences and input and advocacy of the constituents and community where we're seeking to scale organization solution or the systems change effort. You know, and it really isn't complicated. Now, what it looks like, there's huge variance 
what does that mean if I'm doing a workforce development initiative in Chicago versus a, you know, access to healthy foods endeavor in, you know, rural Louisiana? The sort of the culture of the initiative needs to reflect the local context. And so there'll be differences. But the universal principle of inclusive and equitable scale is that at the design phase, at the capital allocation phase, at the assessment phase, and at the implementation phase, that at all of those phases of an intervention, that the proximate insights, the community and constituent insights are not just sort of listened to and, you know, dismissed, but they are centered with no less rigor than we would center the sort of insights of a target customer if we were trying to sell a product, that we would consider the insights of community and constituents as critically important to impact as we do in the for-profit space. When you're working with organizations to help achieve impact, I guess everyone is not always on the same page. We're talking about power here as well. Sure, sure. And so what are the barriers do you think, we talked about the sort of fundamental barriers, but in terms of change, Mm -hmm. what are the barriers that you're seeing to really achieving significant impact or change at scale? Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to things, to will and to mental models and beliefs. And, you know, I love you know, the writings and insights of Malcolm X. And, you know, at different points, he talks about how we collectively in this country have been, you know, hoodwinked and bamboozled. And I just love (laughs) those words. (laughs) I think they should be, you know, reintegrated into, you know, sort of our day-to-day, you know, use of language. I just think they're powerful. And I do believe that in the social impact space that we have been, you know, hoodwinked and bamboozled to believe that you can sort of simply allocate or policy your way out of an oppressive, inequitable system. And we have sort of been taught that we can sort of skip over the more implicit elements of a system that are certainly as, if not even more powerful than where the money goes and what the policy looks like. And the implicit elements of a system that I'm referring to are the mental models, the beliefs. You know, if we believe that distinct communities are primarily a sort of assembly of crisis, deficit, and struggle, and that's what we believe, then every policy we create, every dollar we allocate, every opportunity we open will be poisoned by that broken core belief. What I've learned sometimes the hard way is that it's really hard to be of service to a community that you don't see as intelligent, moral, bearing high character. Like if you see a community as an assembly of deficits and gaps, then the only thing you can do at best is charity. And we have enough of a track record in this country to know that charity is actually just sort of uh, an extension of a manifest destiny mindset that is dependent on the idea of different identity groups having different set of capabilities and value. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That's the root of it. And so if we're looking to move from charity to social impact, then we have to be able to look at our belief systems that make us blind 
to the assets and innovations and genius that exist in those very same communities. The other thing I think that's important is we have to be honest about like trust, you know, investing, grant making, a lot of it comes down to trust. And because we live in a society where most people don't have meaningful relationships outside of their identity group, right? You know, what was it, the study that came out a few years ago that most white, like over 70% of white Americans didn't have a meaningful relationship with a person who wasn't white, right? So like, if that's true, even if that's half true, <laughs> right? It tells a story. 55%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Like, it just, it tells a story. And that lack of trust shows up and how we make investments, and how we do grant making. And so we've got to find ways to accelerate familiarity across different identities and across different life experiences. That is critical because we can't sort of um, program our way beyond the human instinct to feel safer with people and ideas and contexts that feel familiar. So this idea of beliefs, core beliefs underlying mm -hmm. everything makes total sense to me. And I guess mm -hmm. my question is, how do you change beliefs at scale? Mm -hmm. You talked a bit about philanthropy playing a role, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. my experience has been that philanthropy can kickstart, but not usually be the driving energy that achieves scale. So yeah. belief at scale, how do you change that? Yeah, belief at scale. I mean, yeah, that's it's Absolutely. You, you, I don't believe, no pun intended, that you can move faster than the pace of trust, right? Like we are as human beings, as herd animals, beholden to the fact that there's a whole set of physiology that we're carrying around our sense of trust and safety, right? And there will always be a subset of us that are willing to move forward, even if we don't feel particularly safe or clear. But that is not necessarily the sort of dominant way that humans operate. Like most people, there needs to be some level of trust or familiarity or something to move forward. The good news, though, is that what I've seen over and over again here in the United States is that it is actually much easier to build that trust than we imagine. You know, uh, one of the organizations in the Profits Portfolio is this incredible organization in Greensboro, North Carolina, called Beloved Community. And it's led by two organizers and faith-based leaders in their 70s, Joyce and Nelson Johnson, who are survivors of the Greensboro Massacre in the early 70s, where the KKK and the police partnered to create a space for a massacre of organizers and labor leaders in the early 70s. So they're survivors of that. Uh, several of their friends did lose their lives through that violent attack. And they have been able to, through their work at Beloved Community, lead a process of truth, justice, and reconciliation. And so my point is that Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Beloved Community provide a powerful, real-time example of how it is actually possible to build trust even after the most reprehensible demonstration of hatred and violence, even when that's been at play. It's really important with that kind of work for us to get better as a country at telling the story because we have a lot of storytelling power behind fragmentation and polarization, right? And how we're just so disconnected, right? And there's, there's truth to that. That's not necessarily made up, but look at how much media and how much airtime gets dedicated 
to reinforcing the story of separation and impossibility of connection across difference, you know? But so little airtime is dedicated to stories like the one I just shared of the beloved community in Greensboro, North Carolina. You know, you kind of have to be in that space to even know that work is happening. And so I think that while it's important to do the work of truth, justice, and reconciliation, it's also equally important to tell the story of that work so that we can have a counter narrative to the story of separation and we're heading towards a civil war and, and the story that has so much traction right now across most of our media. You and New Prophet work with leaders, mm-hmm. leaders of organizations often, but leaders who are working within systems change, scaling solutions, collaborations. They've set their sights on solving a significant problem in society. Mm-hmm. What do you think the key things that they need to keep in mind as they're going through this journey to really trying to solve a problem at scale are? There's so many things, right? Because, I mean, to be a leader of any kind of institution, I mean, as you know, like, it's not for the faint-hearted. And so I think that one of the biggest things, and I know this is not very kind of like scale-oriented as a response, but I do think one of the biggest things is that we need to look at leadership models and structures that don't guarantee burnout and, uh, you know, depression, <laughs> you know, and overwhelm. I mean, I think that there are some fairly outdated structures and leadership models that don't take into account that most of these leaders are navigating complex ecosystems, right? So you're not leading a nonprofit and doing this one thing and you just do what you do every day. You're, if you're in education, you're interacting with school districts, you're interacting with funders, you're interacting with business leaders, you're interacting with policymakers, you're interacting with families and community members. You have a huge range of constituents that you're beholden to and working with. And the idea that one person should be able to, you know, consistently engage all those constituents uh, in a high quality way over an extended period of time, you know, I just have questions about it. So I think one thing is that we need to take seriously leadership structures and models that don't require that you either are superhuman, you know, maybe in your early 20s in terms of energy, <laughs> you know, and um, that you are you're sort of okay with burnout and that you have the kind of capacity that will mean that if you have burnout or a breakdown that you'll be able to you know, come back from that. Like, because I think the way we've set it up is really broken. So there's that. But in terms of other sort of more scale-oriented factors to consider, I think that it's really exciting to me that I see more and more social impact leaders that are looking at a range of organizational structures. So what I mean by that is, as New Profit expanded the portfolio of leaders that we identify and support, we noticed that we saw a lot of organizations that weren't necessarily 501c3s. We saw hybrid structures with a 501c3 that built an earned revenue arm for a you know, specific set of activities. We saw for-profit organizations that had a social impact mission. We saw that increasingly social impact leaders are not sort of confined to, you know, narrow, rigid definitions of infrastructure. You know, 501c3 is a tax code, right? So, of course, you're going to honor the compliance requirements of that. But I've been really pleased to see that social impact leaders are getting creative and expansive in how they think about sustainability, financial sustainability, that they're looking beyond the sort of funder-grantee structure you know, they're pushing the boundaries of that and expanding that, but they're also looking at earned revenue opportunities with real wisdom and intelligence. They're not chasing dollars. They're saying, wait a minute, I have a whole set of merchandise that's part of how I enroll members. People love it. 
maybe there's a way that I can, you know, sustain a portion of the cost of run- doing business by building out that merchandising, you know, or my voice is really valued in the social sector. Perhaps there's a way that I can monetize, you know, speaking to communities and speaking to funders and speaking to business leaders about the needs of this particular community. So there's all kinds of ways that I'm seeing innovation and entrepreneurial thinking inform not only the programming and impact goals, but also the infrastructure and economic models. And I think that's a good thing. So you talked about some funders who are doing good work on equity, Mm -hmm. but if you could wave your magic wand and get funders to fund differently... What would you wish if we're going to reach equity at scale? Yeah, there's something that New Profit we talk about that that I call the um, reputation to revenue gap. And short version of it is that there's a phenomenon, which I think is a troubling one, of um, particularly BIPOC leaders, right? Who are beloved, held in incredibly high regard, right? Who are at all the conferences, who have, you know, movies made about their life and work, who are just beloved. And yet when you look at their operating budget, that regard and respect and reverence does not translate into revenue. And I call that the reputation to revenue gap. And it's a phenomenon that seems to play out for BIPOC folks in really pervasive and troubling ways. I haven't seen every, you know, operating budget of every BIPOC leader in this country, clearly, but I've looked at quite a few. And, you know, there's maybe two exceptions to this trend of, we love you, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing, talk to us, be at our conference, speak to our staff, and well, where's the investment that would match that level of regard? And I think it has a lot to do with what we talked about earlier, Dan, the fact that there's not enough proximity, so, you know, BIPOC leaders are sort of uh, admired instead of trusted to be, you know, the recipients of capital and investment, it's sort of this this othering that can happen, even when it's admiration, it's still a form of othering that we see play out. Nonetheless, I do think that it's important for us to address that. I think funders getting beyond the, I admire you, and being more transparent about, you know, I really do see us funding you or not, right? And so here are the steps, as opposed to this sort of constant dance that a lot of leaders have to do, particularly BIPOC leaders, where there's invitations to come to this event, to this dinner, to chat, to be sort of watched and admired. And you never really know, as a leader, is this cultivation for an investment? If I say yes to this, is this part of me becoming part of the, you know, community and funding community of this particular, you know, institution? Do I need to show up to everything I get invited to in order to be seen as a team player? If I say no, because I'm invited to so much by this funder, does that put, you know, possible investment at risk? There's a whole set of questions that BIPOC leaders have to navigate that are weighted more heavily against them because of this reputation to revenue gap. If we're truly to scale impact for all, equity has to be at the heart of everything we do. While Tulane and other leaders like her give important perspective and insight, it's up to each of us to bring these critical concepts into our practical day-to-day work. What are you doing today to make your work more equitable and inclusive for those you serve? If you're interested in learning more about Tulane and the work at New Profit, 
please visit newprofit.org. We've also provided a link in our show notes. That's it from us, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate us and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or colleague. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode.